and opinions expressed by callers, guests, and hosts do not necessarily reflect those of the Black Talk Radio Network and Black Talk Media Project. Black Talk Radio is new black media for the new millennium. Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network, a program that seeks to educate, inform, and agitate on the issue of 21st century legalized slavery. Hosted by social activist and folklore poet Max Parsons, with new abolitionist and actionist Johanna Nelaya and Black Talk Media Project founder Scotty Reed. On this program, we discuss recent news on legalized 21st century slavery and human trafficking, along with projects and people who help combat it. Today is the April 5th broadcast of New Abolitionist Radio, 14 weeks into your worst nightmares as a nation and poised on the brink of moral, ethical, and physical oblivion. Ironically, it is National Poetry Month as well. On this day, in 1968, we were one day after the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., an assassination to which U.S. government agencies were found guilty in Martin Luther King's assassination by the Circuit Court of Shelby County, Tennessee, 13th Judicial District at Memphis on December 1999. Today, we'll name the six big banks keeping private for-profit prisons in business. We'll talk about the NYPD infiltration of the Black Lives Matter organization. Also, we want to talk about the DEA and how in the last decade, it has taken nearly $3.5 billion dollars from people who were never charged with a crime. Today, Al Jazeera English released the first part of a powerful and compelling expose on the Alabama prison system with discussions on the 13th Amendment and commentary by the Free Alabama Movement. My interview with Eddie Conway on the Real News Network was also released today, and after all Eddie has seen being on the front lines and experiencing 44 years in prison, I was able to scare him with information I dropped. A Chicago cop is accused of framing at least 51 people with murder. Also, Mayor de Blasio of New York vows to close Rikers Island. A South Carolina family is suing the SCPD on behalf of deceased Walkie Simone Williams, who was shot in the back 17 times by three officers as he lay unarmed on the ground. Our writer of the 21st Century Underground Railroad is Andrew Wilson, who was released in March after being incarcerated for 32 years over a murder he did not commit. Our abolitionist in profile is Maria W. Stewart, 
1803 to 1879, who became the first American woman to address the public audience of women and men. She spoke out against slavery, criticizing black men for not standing up and being heard on the subject of rights. Maria wrote both pamphlets, pamphlets and speeches for William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator till she retired in 1833. We've got a lot to cover, so let's get to it. If you got a question or comment, you can call us at 1-866-510-9025. You can also chat with us live by logging in at uberconference.com slash Black Talk Radio Network. Once again, I'm Max Parthas. What's happening, Brother Scotty? Same old, same old every day. Another day in the struggle, as they say. Uh, Brother Max, how are you today? I've got some good news today and some scary news today. Uh, as you may be aware, we're under a tornado watch here right now in our area, like in our specific area. It was pretty nasty out here earlier, and uh, they told us to take shelter and to leave our homes, to which we did not. So we're hoping that uh, it passes us by without anything happening. That's the scary news. The good news is I got a call from my son today who will be released next month after 17 years. Oh, that's not good news. That's great news. Yes, that's that's great news, man. It's a, it's a journey about to happen, that's for sure. Yeah, I did not know about a tornado watch uh, as I've been uh, at my desk all day uh, broadcasting and taking care of other business associated with the Black Talk Media Project. But we did get some of that rain, so I imagine that's the system they're they're talking about. Uh, it actually just stopped raining about an hour or so ago. Yeah, they told us that there was a 7 in 10 chance of a tornado forming here in our area and that we should take shelter immediately. Um, but our car is broken down right now, so there ain't a whole lot we can do. Or yeah, you can, can take go. shelter so, uh, in the bathtub. Um, yeah, faith to God and let Him handle it. If you if you have a bathtub, that will be a good place to see shelter, uh, unless you got a basement. That will be the best place to take shelter. So um, let's get to it, Max. Uh, of course, Johanna will be joining us later. Uh, as he's probably on his way home from work, but um, certainly we'll look forward to hearing from him. But a lot of important stories to talk about today, and also I'm looking forward to seeing the interview you did on Real News Network. Oh, man, uh, it, it, I, I think I did a good job, and I'm as I said, I managed to surprise Eddie Conway, who I didn't think I could do that, but he literally said, hey, what, Max, you're scaring me with this right now, and I was just telling him, What's going down that he may not have been aware of, that many people are not aware of. But um, uh, hopefully that it gets out and it makes people uh, understand what we're dealing with and why it's crucial that we handle this business right now. You know, I don't mean to throw you off in any kind of order you may be in, but that would be a good segue for those who don't know who Eddie Conway is He's a black. He was a member of the Black Panther Party in Baltimore. Um, the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party was started by the FBI. Might as well say started by J. Edgar Hoover, who used black agents to start a chapter of Baltimore uh, Black Panther Party. And that's kind of a good segue to the story I heard you mention about Black Lives Matter being infiltrated by NYPD. 
because these, yes. I mean, it's it's the same same playbook. And there's a lot I could say towards that. So that's the chapter that Eddie Conway comes out of, obviously set up uh, by the FBI, started chapter, you know. So, I mean, there's so much history, man. Then you mentioned uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. being assassinated, and there was a civil trial. That was actually the focus of my Tanya Free and Friends Black Talk Radio commentary today. I was reminding people that yesterday was the anniversary of his assassination. And I, you know, just share a lot of information as much as I could because a lot of people don't know these things. But the King family um, had had uh, filed Coretta Scott King and, of course, the rest of the family members filed a lawsuit against this guy. I can't recall his name because actually it was the first time I heard his name for today. So Scotty's always trying to learn. Uh, new things, but they sued this guy. I think he made a book or, or something, wrote a book or something, but they sued him um, for a conspiracy, which included uh, this guy play, claims he was paid $100,000 um, to set up the assassination, paid by who? What, by the U.S. government. And this jury, uh, 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 this jury found on behalf of the King family in that civil wrongful death lawsuit. Now, I also discovered, I couldn't put it in the two-minute two um, little clip, but I also discovered that in 2000, the FBI called itself opening up an investigation into the conspiracy, and obviously, they found themselves not guilty. So, but w- would you like Dave, to start? If you'd like with- to uh, do this story, you can go ahead and start it out, Scotty. Sure, sure. Let me find it. I am in our. I just put uh, it on the New Abolitionist Radio Facebook page, and it's also in our planning page as well. Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, in the you're planning listening, page. You should always follow us on Facebook as well as listening to us, so you can bookmark the links, so you can review them for yourself later. Often we provide materials and information for researchers to look into. So give me here. No, that's the Chicago cop. Uh, give me just a second, Max. I will find it. NYPD X. Access the, because I hate to go to Facebook, man. They tend to lock up my screen when I'm running all these other programs, trying to just be patient with me. But, okay, I know what the deal is. Show previous comments. Okay, now I can find it. All right. see. De Blasio. guess I'm going to have to go to our Facebook page because I'm just not seeing it, Max. I know I linked up to it. To You know, just reading that story tells me that COINTELPRO has never ended. No, it's just never like slavery ended, has never ended. They're still doing the same things that they did before. And, you know, the FBI had the nerve to talk about uh, Martin Luther King's mission in honor of his uh, the anniversary of his assassination. I mean, that was just like rubbing salt in the wound. This is the same FBI that sent him letters asking him to kill himself and also tried to frame him uh, to, to uh, defame his character with uh, allegations of infidelity and things like that. Max, are you talking about the article titled NYPD Officers Access Black Lives yes. Matter Activist Text? Yes, sir. That's the one. Okay. So 
This says undercover officers in the New York Police Department. And by the way, this come to you via The Guardian. It was published yesterday. Undercover officers in the New York Police Department infiltrated small groups of Black Lives Matter activists and gained access to their text messages, according to newly released NYPD documents obtained by The Guardian. Well, you know, they could have just, I don't know if they have a, a deal with the NSA, but they could have just got that information from the NSA. Uh, the records produced in response to a freedom of information lawsuit led by New York law firm Stecklow and Thompson provide the most detailed picture yet of the sweeping scope of NYPD surveillance during mass protests over the death of Eric Garner in 2014 and 2015. Lawyers said the new documents raised questions about NYPD compliance with city rules. The documents, mostly emails between undercover officers and other NYPD officials, follow other disclosures that the NYPD regularly filmed Black Lives Matter activists and sent undercover Personnel to protests. Those could have been the uh, agents, provocateurs, saboteurs. The NYPD has not responded to the Guardian's request for comment or interview email show that undercover officers were able to pose as protesters, even within small groups, giving them extensive access to details about protesters' whereabouts and plans. In one email, an official notes that an undercover officer is embedded within a group of seven protesters on the way to Grand Central Station. This intimate access appears to have helped police pass as trusted organizers. So look, they, they lead and stuff. Again, just like I said, the FBI started the Baltimore chapter of the Black Panther Party. And while we talk about COINTELPRO, we mainly focus on the FBI they often work with your local police departments and, of course, the NYPD, which has uh, been implicated also in assassination of Malcolm X. All right, so let me uh, continue on. Um, I mean, so here, here we got NYPD undercover officers starting protests, right? All right, so there you go. This intimate, uh, let me move on. Uh, this intimate access appears to have helped police pass its trusted organizers and extract information about demonstrations and other emails. Officers share the locations of individual protesters at particular times. So uh, that sounds like an assassination squad to me. Not saying that they, they, they were going to assassinate uh, any activists, but it just reminds me of the surveillance on Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and many other all, all of the activists, man, other leftist organizations, whether they were uh, white, uh, so-called as Nixon called them, hippie war protesters, just uh, it, it never ends, people. But what 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 really stands out to me is we fail to learn from history because we don't study history. There are there are countermeasures to this that you can safeguard infiltration into your organizations. It's just crazy. And the other thing that stands out to me is, again, they had to use black people. A lot of black people um, work for the U.S. government to infiltrate the the Nation of Islam, uh, any of the civil rights organizations back in the 60s. Uh, just it, it, it's to no fail. 
they use thee. They use people who look like you because you have a tendency to let your guard down. But in this age of technology, though, you know, you can do background checks on people. You can do countermeasures. But this speaks to just young people not knowing history, not developing tactics, not relying on elders because you got elders in New York who are 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 um oh, how shall we say experienced organizers who fell victim to the very thing I've been talking about and they could warn you on those eels but I mean we can glean enough just from reading uh in the newspapers and what has been revealed about COINTELPRO and safeguard put up safeguards uh for today. So, again, you know, I, I look at how Black Lives Matter started. It just too quick. It started out of a, of a protest. OK, it started off a protest and you had young people who knew how to organize, but apparently were not educated enough on COINTELPRO. But but then I failed to understand that, because when you're using a side of Shakur, on some of your T-shirts and your promotion and promoting her and stuff, then she one of the living victims of COINTELPRO uh, who was able to escape the United States. So it, it's just so sad all around on all fronts here. Uh, obviously, the the um, the violations of people's civil rights, constitutional rights, human rights by the NYPD, number one, but number two is we have failed to learn from history and discover the areas that where we messed up at so we don't keep repeating the same mistakes in our movements. Max? Well, it is kind of amazing when you start thinking about how intimately involved they were. As you pointed out, it was a uh, agent that actually started the Maryland chapter of the Black Panther Party. We also know that the photographer, official photographer for Martin Luther King Jr., Ernest Withers, was also an FBI agent, acting as an FBI agent. That's how close he was. He's the guy running around photographing everything that's happening as it's happening. So it's just an amazing to know that they can get that deeply embedded. Uh, and I've had to deal with these circumstances myself in my own group. I've pretty much come to the conclusion that it's near impossible to keep them out. Like, you never know who it is. I've even heard stories where agents have married people and become a part of their family in order to report back to the FBI. So they'll go that deep undercover just to uh, infiltrate and manipulate movements, sometimes to manipulate a movement into destruction or to uh, stage events. You know, uh, infiltrators will stage events. They'll throw rocks or fire shots in order to start riots and things like that so they can disband the, the uh, movements or even criminalize them. Uh, it depends on what it is their orders are at the time. It is frightening to know. That's why I keep my circle so tight that it's around my ring. I'm around my fingers. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, Max, your audio's going in and out. I don't know what the cause of that is. When I uh, say in and out, I just it might mean, be. I'll try to clear it up. Now, you sound great right there. All right, so Johanan okay. has joined us, as I stated he would. So, Johanan, uh, welcome, bro. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on this story we're, we're discussing about the infiltration of Black Lives Matter groups in New York by the NYPD? Well, peace, peace. Of course, it's good to be What's here. Up, yeah. Um, man, it's nothing, you know, no surprise to me. I mean, the the, the history of slavery itself and, and how the whole thing was formed is is based and rooted in meritorious manumission. So, I mean, even if it wasn't the police doing it, you know, the whole history of our interaction with this oppressor has been based on being able to pick a few here and there at the, at a, at a minimum, they will be willing to sacrifice all of us for themselves to be able to get some extra rations or with the, in some cases, I guess they were people that were actually able to win their, their uh, so-called freedom from, uh, from slavery by doing some kind of an act that helped, you know, a white person carry on their agenda. So this is all, I mean, is America is, is still doing the same things, just warmed over. It just looks a little different, but mostly the way these things get carried out and people are so shocked or don't see what's happening. The the main way that happens is because people don't study the history of, of what they claim they represent and the rest that, that watch and benefit from the work of the organizers and the work of the grassroots and the people that are working to change legislation and end, you know, the tyranny and the deaths and the incarceration state, all this work that's being done, the people that don't want to get involved, they just want to benefit from it. They, they don't have a clue what's going on in any kind of way, but yeah, this is just history repeating itself. That's exactly what it is. And it's not something that we can easily avoid. I mean, it's almost impossible you never know who it is. You know, when we're discussing things in the Million for Prisoners March on Washington form, forums, we're uh, very much aware that we're being monitored, even in these private forums. There's just no way to escape it. Every phone, every smart television, uh, anything where your voice can be captured or viewed will be captured and viewed if you're perceived as a threat. And I must admit here at New Abolitionist Radio, we have witnessed nearly $5 billion in divestment programs from the prison systems. So that particularly makes us a threat. And I would suspect that even this program right now probably has as many cops listening as it does regular people. Yeah. And something, too, that I will add to that is, I mean, it's obviously the surveillance state uh, for every American citizen and really just a global surveillance state overall, as we know, I mean, we've talked about on this program for many years now, you know, the unmanned drone programs, the the cameras that are able to pick up on a license plate from, you know, 15,000 feet in the air, solar powered uh, drones that don't even have to land. I mean, all this type of technology that, you know, this is four or five, six years ago that was being talked about then and then it's likely been developed long before it was ever talked about. So, I mean, this stuff doesn't just go away. Um, I'm seeing now on the morning news, the traffic cameras that used to have to fix traffic cameras on the highway and these, you know, show you the traffic flow or whatever morning traffic I've saw on the news this morning, they had drone footage for the, the Kansas department of transportation. You know, this is our drone aerial footage and drone just flying over the highway, whatever. So just saying that to say they already can watch, they already can hear we already know your smartphones and your devices and all of this i mean it's surveillance to beat the band so throwing in the people can only be for uh the the like we said with the malcolm x aspect or like uh, i shared a, a link into the uber conference uh 
uh, section about uh, when they had the Eric Garner protests going on. Uh, one of the protests that went on in Oakland uh, was where they had the undercover cop had to come out of character and pull his gun on on the crowd. Not that they were mm-hmm. attacking him necessarily, but he, he came out of character, pulled his gun out. And all these news organizations had him on film, and they tried to to turn that story around and change it and, and cover it or whatever, but it was, it got too big. They couldn't, they couldn't deny it. So they just walked away from it until people forgot. So, I mean, they've been caught red handed plenty of times as far back as the black Panthers, uh, where they would catch, uh, catch folks and call them out and put their name out there. And they would, they couldn't patrol in that area. They couldn't keep doing what they were doing in that neighborhood anymore. So we just have to stay vigilant. Not that we talking about anything. Not that we talking about anything needs to be hidden. Hell, they know what they do. We know what we do. I mean, I, I don't feel. I'm not telling people to be crazy or go wild and you know go get yourself thrown in jail or whatever. Don't make yourself a suspect. But honestly, I don't feel like a fear factor for what we talk about or for what I make public on social media or when I go to meetings or talk with people about what we talk about. That's why I say. Peace to the abolitionists. If you're somebody trying to end slavery, peace to you. I want you to have a peaceful walk as much as you can have. I know it's probably not going to be. And I say <laughs> death to oppressors. If you're somebody that wants to oppress people, why? I mean, what I would, I want you to live. I want you to be my neighbor. I want you to be my personal oppressor. So I don't feel like we we have to put ourselves in situations where these people can lock us up because of our rhetoric or because of what we do or or whatever, even though we know that they don't have to have cause and, and evidence or whatever to, to get you caught up in the system. They can just choose to put you in there and make you well, figure out a way to get yourself out. Well, Johanna, they are they doing political assassinations now. What do you think these of drones course. killing yes. American citizens? See, the rest yes. of most of America don't care because they were Muslims or and right. non-white. But you got Anwar Alalaki, you got Samir Khan, who were from right here in Charlotte. There was another man from Charlotte. I think he might have even been white, but had converted to Islam. But these are people who the government accused them of being linked to Al-Qaeda or terrorists and um, they never arrested them. Why didn't you arrest them while they were in the United States? They waited till Samir Khan was like, he's only 20 years old. He was going to Central Piedmont uh, Community College uh, where I took, uh, what did I take there? Some broadcasting classes, radio techniques, something like that. Some class, studio techniques class. And when he went to visit um, some relatives in Yemen, he was born here, but he, you know, uh, had relatives in Yemen. Next thing you know, he killed by a drone, drone strike, you know, without charge, without charge, on the kill list which has been in the news lately with Donald Trump inheriting that kill list and two journalists saying that, hey, we're on that list and we shouldn't be on there. So these programs, these assassinations that took place of of Fred Hampton Jr. in Chicago, Malcolm X in in New York, uh, Dr. King in Memphis, it's no different than what we see, see going on today and and what can else can we learn from these stories in terms if we're going to have an organization with a name we got to know who its members are you need to be doing background checks just as if you was going to hire them for a bank teller job you need to do counter surveillance you know surveillance on them have your own surveillance team surveilling these people to make sure who they say they are when you have people just pop up out of the blue right. don't nobody know 
their name and, and what have you. So there are ways that you can you can fight against that. And then also when you got cops uh, doing protests, starting protests, undercover cops starting protests, and and then next thing you know, people breaking stuff. And and who's who's it hurting? It's hurting the real activists. So you had to take control of your image. You had to be monitoring the media and watching the media so you can see these people being portrayed as leaders. And you could say, hey, they're not part of my organization. We don't know who this person is who is hijacking our name out there, so-called doing the protests uh, in our name like we're leading it. See, I mean, it's, it's man, the enemy has many different, different um, weapons in his arsenal. Media has been a big part of it. That's why I started Black Talk Media Project because Malcolm X talked about the power of the media. But to Johannes' point, look, I have no doubt that the things that I say in criticizing USA Inc. and just telling the truth, the truth as I have have uh, come to know from study and, and not worried about getting paid by advertisers because they find my content not advertiser-friendly as YouTube is going through that, you know, uh, people talking about fake news. So I have no no doubt that there's a target on me. We've been on a radar. When you have the uh, former chief or the former commissioner of the NYPD talking about to a, uh, in a speech to cadets that they view us as slave catchers, I forget his exact words, but I mean, those terms are on, I've only heard used on this network. I would be a fool to think that they are not have not been listening in the eight years and myself personally, the nine years that I have been doing in online broadcasting. Okay. And so, but I'm no dummy. I don't get on here and tell you go out there and kill Whitey and all. We've seen people play the angry black militant on YouTube right. and end up getting arrested. We don't engage in that. We're having serious conversations. We're putting out real information. We're not here to entertain you. Okay. And, and so you have, you, it, it's just so many different ways they come at you, but there are so many uh, more ways to protect yourself. It's, it's just a matter of, of just being informed yourself. Guys, I yes, agree. sir. In, in, definitely in agreement, man. Uh, you know, this is a huge industry, this slavery system that we're dealing with. It generates so much money, and that is usually what it's all about, capitalism without uh, concern for human life whatsoever or freedom or anything at all. As long as the money is coming in, uh, the elite can go to sleep at night uh, feeling good about themselves. Maybe they'll give a few thousand, a few hundred thousand away to charitable events and decimate the lives of millions as they do so and care less about. Um, one of the other stories that is, uh, applies to that would be the one that's going on about the DEA uh, with that $3.5 billion that they've collected in the past 10 years just taking money from people who would never charge with a crime. Because, you know, uh, the Fourth Amendment pr- protects you from illegal searches and seizures, right? Uh, it's supposed to be your rights and your property and your person is supposed to be protected from these things. But that's not what's happening in reality. Uh, the Fourth Amendment really doesn't exist, at least not for the majority of the population. And uh, according to this story that just came out in the Washington Post recently, 
as I said, three and a half billion dollars. Um, would you like me to, to do that one, or you guys want to talk a little bit more about the other story first? We can move on. I mean, it's, it's well, all connected. So. Yeah, yeah, but Max, till we get your audio well, situation worked out, bro, I think it's best you let me and Johanan uh, do the stories, and, and we'll get your commentary, but in terms of sharing the information, because your audio is just not good. It hasn't been in the past couple of weeks, and I understand your situation. Then you got a hurricane bearing down on you or a possible tornado, so, uh, Johanna, you want to yeah, lead us in on the story? Weather-wise. So go ahead. Uh, if you want to get on that DEA, DEA story, uh, we'll connect the dots for the people, so to speak. All right. Well, as you said, the DEA, um, I've seen numbers as high as $4 billion since 2007. So this is one for uh, for you to, to put in front of your Blue Lives Matter friends. Uh, we've posted and talked about stories about the asset forfeiture over the years. And uh, people, you know, love to pipe up and talk about don't do crime. And, you know, this won't happen to you and this kind of thing. And the cops, you know, they're using it for a good purpose to fight. All these excuses and propping it up you can do, but... Now we got a report that came out uh, from the Justice Department Inspector General uh, that is just telling you how big this situation really is. So if you maybe see it as not being just a a couple of dope boys' cars on twenty fours and you know some guns they took from a from a, a crack house that got kicked in and all this kind of you know this crazy stuff you see on cops and this propaganda you see from the police state putting it out there to justify their occupation and terrorization of the citizens, the taxation without representation that goes on in America. When you see what it actually is, maybe it'll, it'll kind of help you help you get your scope together of what's really going on. It says the drug enforcement administration sees more than $4 billion in cash from people suspected of drug activity over the last decade, but $3.2 billion of those seizures were never connected to any criminal charges. Now, does that sound like an overwhelming amount of a number, if you say four billion was taken, and three point two billion of it didn't have any kind of criminal charges associated with it ever, they've had ten years to find some way to associate it with criminal charges, and none. And three point two billion of it didn't. That's that's just uh, uh, amazing. It reminds me to stop uh, stop and frisk numbers when they came out and said that over seventy percent of those people that have been stopped and frisked out of the two million. They never had any kind of criminal charges or nothing. No, nothing. They did nothing. They just stopped, questioned, frisked them, arrested them, beat them, did whatever, and they did nothing. So this is what, we, this is what we're dealing with. Um, said the Justice Department Inspector General released uh, a report that found a DEA's gargantuan amount of cash seizures often didn't relate to any ongoing criminal investigations, and 82% of seizures it reviewed ended up being settled administratively, that is, without any judicial review, raising civil liberties concerns. In total, the inspector general reports the DEA seized $4.15 billion in cash since 2007, accounting for 80% of all Justice Department cash seizures. Those figures do not include other properties such as this. So they're not even including the other properties that they took, such as cash, electronics, or such as cars, rather, electronics, which are favorite targets for seizure by law law enforcement. All of this is possible. What's that? Houses too. Yeah, houses, motorhomes, ATVs, all everything. So this is so this is just literally cash. I mean, cash. We're not even talking about all the stuff they took. 
Wow. Okay. So all this is possible through civil asset forfeiture, which allows law enforcement to seize property if they suspect it's connected to criminal activity without having to file criminal charges against the owner. While law enforcement groups say civil asset forfeiture is a vital tool to disrupt drug traffickers. Hell yeah. It pays a hell of a lot of overtime. Uh, and and uh, black, what they call it, what they call the, the, the black money, where they just put some in the little fund and just do whatever. The inspector general's findings echo the concerns of many civil liberties groups, which say, Asset forfeiture creates perverse incentives for law enforcement to seize property. When seizure and administrative forfeitures do not ultimately advance an investigation or prosecution, law enforcement creates the appearance and risk the reality that it is more interested in seizing and forfeiting cash than advancing investigation or prosecution. Uh, Darf, Darpana Seth, Sheth, an attorney for the libertarian-leaning nonprofit law firm Institute for Justice, said in a statement that the report's findings, quote, fundamentally undercut law enforcement's claim that civil forfeiture is a vital crime-fighting tool. Yeah, Americans are outraged at the Justice Department's aggressive use of civil forfeiture, which has mushroomed into a multi-billion dollar program in the last decade. This report only further confirms what we have been saying all along. Forfeiture laws create perverse financial incentives to seize property without judicial oversight and violate due process. Uh, it goes on to say of only 44 of the 100 seizures uh, as a part of this investigation, Justice Department Inspector General reviewed 100 DEA seizures that occurred without court issued warrants or accompanying narcotic seizures. Cases, it said, presented particularly significant risks to civil liberty. So he, he just picked 100 random cases that prove this point. Only 44 of the 100 seizures were connected to or advanced any criminal investigation. The majority of seizures occurred in airports, train stations, bus terminals, where the DEA regularly snoops on travel records and maintains a network of travel industry employees who act as confidential informants. Oh, man. So, I mean, it goes on. I think people pretty much know where we headed with this. I mean, y'all want me to keep going on into it? It's it's not that long, but... Yeah. You know, one of the best presentations on civil forfeiture that I've seen to date came from a comedian, and that's John Oliver. Uh, I put it on our page so other people can see it, but it just shows the ridiculousness. And that's really not a good term to use, ridiculous. It's, it's just criminal, completely criminal, to the point that Canada had to inform their citizens when traveling to the United States, officially inform them that they should be wary of our policemen who are robbing people. Well, um, the DEA, again, let me give you some of their more recent history. Of course, the DEA was created when both houses of Congress, a bipartisan effort, where gave the Nixon administration the start of so-called war on drugs, which we know from Michelle Alexander's research to really target the blacks. Okay, so this is the DEA. That was when it was born out of, out of that. Okay, it's just some more recent history of the DEA. Again, I was just uh, scanning some of the news headlines. Uh, what's his name? El Chapo, Joe Quinn, El Chapo Guzman has been sentenced to life in prison. Um, he gets life for drug smuggling. The DEA and what was his Mexican cartel that he was leading? The Sinaloa uh, cartel out of Sinaloa, Mexico. All right. So 
DEA, this is documented in major newspapers, uh, the largest newspaper in Mexico, in circulation in Mexico, uh, first reported this story, and then it was picked up internationally. The DEA had a deal with Sinaloa cartel members to allow them to smuggle uh, drugs and anything else, because I imagine the DEA didn't check their shipments, so they probably could be bringing guns and everything. They probably did. If I was them, I would have. I wouldn't have just stuck to weed or cocaine. I'd have been bringing guns and whatever else I could sell. So this is documented that the DEA had a deal with them under Michelle Lionheart. She was the last, I think I pronounced her name correct. She was the last head of the DEA all through the Obama administration. Um, she was appointed by George Bush, I think. So, but it, uh, yeah, Bush was before Obama. Yeah. So, um, so they had this deal to allow them, you know, this corridor where they could smuggle drugs all the way to Chicago. And I guess Chicago was the, could have been the main distribution center in the United States to then be trafficked to other parts unknown. This And what did the Sinaloa cartel, what did Mr. Guzman get in return for this cooperation or in turn for this beautiful deal, you know? Uh, all he had to do was provide information on his rival cartels shipments. So that means that he could send some of his people to go join the cartel, find out about some shipments, let us know. Then we can let the DEA know they can bust our competition and then take pictures and newspapers will say, look at the job the DEA is doing. Look at all that marijuana. Look at all that cannabis. Look, 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 look. Even got some guns and stacks of cash. You see what I'm saying? So I mean, this is this is what the DEA is doing. What else did happen? Uh, 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 doing Lionheart's or Leonhart's uh, tenure, you had agents in. Um, what well, what is they're known for producing cocaine? I uh, can't think of the country name uh, right now. Colombia, yeah, Colombia. The DEA was in. Um, some of his agents was down there, so so called fighting the war on drugs. And they were at a hotel having parties with with sex workers that were paid for. I would also probably say they were victims of human trafficking. But um, these women were paid to have this sex party with these DEA agents, and it was paid for by the drug cartels. And, again, these are mainstream news media reports, not that they the end-all, be-all and, and, um, or anything like that. But this did make mainstream reports. How it became news is because these guys had their Blackberries, their so-called smartphones, and the women had access to it. And I think one of them lost his phone or, or something, and that's how it, came, how it came out. So this is the DEA that is also robbing millions of Americans. Like I think, Max, it might have been Johanna who, who described them as what it, what did you call it uh tax you know taxation without representation okay so we reported on yep. these very stories over the years since we've been broadcasting this program but again like uh Johanna was saying earlier we're supposed to just put our blind faith and trust in law enforcement let me just say this and, and I quit ranting but uh, like the NYPD commissioner admitted, I guess after he got through listening to Black Talk Radio, is that 
police have always historically been uh, there when something bad happened in the black community. Y'all could Google that. What was that commissioner's name? I can't remember. He just retired NYPD uh, uh, commissioner. I about flipped out when I heard that. <laughs> I was like, yeah, this dude. Eric Bernard, no, not Bernard Carey. He was in prisons. Uh, uh, I know who you're talking about, this knucklehead. He had left for a while, and he's an international figure now for police. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So, so yeah. But- Bratton? Bill Bratton? That's yep. him, Bill Bratton. That's him. I think, or was it Ray something? I, it, yeah, it was Bill Bratton. But, I mean, Bill all Bratton. of this, y'all can Google it, search for it. I don't tell lies. I don't push fake news. Um, so, But this is the DEA. This is the United States government. And police are helping. These are the good guys. This is what I'll leave you with. These are the good guys when they're when they're not involved in shooting innocent unarmed Americans down in the street, they're robbing them. Guys. Well, I'm I'm with you on everything you said, man, and it's you know just pieces of the puzzle that put together. <clears throat> we have people who are fighting so many segments of this, like this civil asset forfeiture that's going on. But you got to look at this in the larger scheme of things as a bigger picture than just these elements combined they are a crime against humanity because they're all based on the same thing they all stem from the same problem which is legalized slavery and human trafficking you have slave catchers out here not only stealing people but stealing the people's property as well that's not uncommon when you look at it as slavery and human trafficking Well, this is what they do, man. No oversight. And this is the thing that overall, um, for me, like all the stories that we report on, everything we investigate, all the research over all these years, just, I mean, probably into the thousands of, of links and stories and just the intertwining. Like we've literally sat down with the spider's web and investigated like individual strands of web and tied it all back to the same thing in the center. So this is why, for me, it's like, it's it's difficult for me to, I understand everybody's not on the same level. I'm not attacking people that have an interest in saying, oh, you don't know this, and, you know, I'm not that guy. But it's it's difficult for me to watch people engage in popular culture and go after personal and, and selfish pursuits and want everybody to support them while they go back to college or because they get married and they get ready to go do this or they get ready to go buy that or they need this new thing. Like when you want something, you put your passion into it. You put your heart into it, your prayers in it. You get the whole church praying for you. You got the pastor holding your hand at the altar. We're taking a special collection because you're trying to do like when you care, you care about something. So it's just become obvious to me over the years of doing this program and seeing this DEA story and all the DEA stories like it and all the corruption that's gone on for so many years, the billions of dollars they've cashed, dollars they've stolen from people, homes they've stolen, vehicles they've stolen, people couldn't go to work, lost their job, lost everything. This all contributes to the black communities being in a mess. This is effective destabilization. We, we do this type of thing in foreign countries as a matter of foreign policy. Not the DEA, maybe, but the CIA. 
You go in, you disrupt the community, you destroy the economy, you mess up the government, you get the people going crazy, you arm some insurgents, and then you say you got rebels there, and then you justify doing strikes, and 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 the people are no, they're not autonomous, and then we put in our puppets, and then we control their resources and control their comings and goings. This is a, a foreign policy strategy. It's obviously a domestic policy. I strategy. would say though, Johanan. Um, that the DEA is participating in the destabilization of those oh, countries yeah. and, and, yeah. and this one and our communities and our society when they cutting deals just like the CIA, right. you know, cutting drug deals. So, yeah, it's just tough for me to 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 abide by people feigning ignorance, pretending as though oh, I didn't know. Oh, man, that's crazy. Like just. Come on, man, it's 2017. You know water's wet. You know the sky is blue. You know what's going on with this. And okay, it maybe it doesn't become your life, your life passion that you become an abolitionist and you hear every week and you research and then you do okay, maybe that's not everybody's thing. But if you've known me, you've known Max, you've known Scotty, you've seen this going on for years. You you know people in prison. You you see the community situation. Like I'm having a hard time understanding how we're still focusing on you know, KMT and, and the Orishas and, and, and over here, we're going to be vegans and over here, we're going to study melanin and over here, we're going to do this and over here, we're going to do that. And all of these things that we want to do are going to get a huge boost of energy and capital influx and people's ability to pursue them as free citizens, autonomous, when we actually end slavery, which is oppressing everything you want to do. I mean, it should be obvious to you. You can't pursue anything else you want to pursue. It should be obvious to you as seeing a slave movie, and you see all the Negroes is on the plantation in the field. I'm sure it was plenty of doctors, lawyers, engineers, preachers, teachers, sewing circles, people that want to do all kinds of things while they was out there picking that cotton, picking that tobacco, cutting that sugar cane, doing whatever they was doing. But guess what? They lived their entire lives over hundreds of years. And none of them got to do none of that because all they could do was live under the slavery. Now I feel this like Scotty ran over. <laughs> Sorry. Just This is one of the things that I even had to discuss with Eddie Conway because he was talking prison slavery, even in the title of the video that we uh, interview we did, it says prison slavery. And I had to clarify it for him. We're not focused on abolishing prisons. We're focused on abolishing slavery. Prisons are just a tool. They're a part of that system, but they're right. not the end all and be all. Right. If you think back to the 1800s, you didn't have people out there trying to abolish plantations, thinking that that would stop the problem because it wouldn't. Yeah, Max, we got to have somewhere to put people like um, these two young men. And I got to put out a video about it because one of them still on the loose. They were from Charlotte. They brought this 14 year old, beautiful uh, uh, black girl to Mount Holly to one of, one of our beautiful parts and murdered her. And we got to have somewhere to put put people who commit heinous crimes like that. So he's sitting in jail until uh, he will have his, his trial and the other one's on the loose and we still looking for him. Um, but again, that's why when people start talking about the prison ab- abolishing prisons, I'm like, if this had been my daughter or, or any child in my family or my neighbor's children, children that I know that I see every day, 
you know, um, until somebody lays out a system of how we're going to rehabilitate them without uh, segregating them, then, you know, I'm willing to listen. But the focus of the movement that I'm a part of, along with Max and Johan, and we're focusing on ending slavery. We will sort that other stuff out later, um, but let's end slavery first. Amen to that, brother. Uh, that is the root of all evil, so to speak, right there. It is the domino, and if you knock that domino down, you'll get your domino effect. It will touch every aspect of society. It will touch all the problems that we're dealing with, even the economic problems, you know, that we're dealing with all stem from this one issue. And it begins with the 13th Amendment, taking that exception clause out, stopping it from being legal, because as long as it's legal, they can do it without any repercussions whatsoever. But, uh, you know, if you want, uh, since we're tying things together and we're not necessarily putting them in any particular order, uh, we could talk about the interview with Eddie Conway. Well, yeah, let, let's uh, say that one because uh, we're coming up. How long is it, Max? Because we're coming up on the break. Oh, I didn't think you were going to play it. but uh, it, it I wanted to play it. Four, yeah, I want to play 15 it. Minutes. It's how long? I think it's, it's like 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it's pretty long. Just, we could just play a little bit of it like we did last week with Crystals, if you like. Okay, okay. Well, we'll do that right before, um, on the other side of the break. We'll play about five minutes or so of it. And um, definitely, Max, thank you for being out there spreading the abolitionist message like a Johnny Appleseed, as they say. Uh, spreading <laughs> them seeds of abolitionism. I remember you. I remember you had mentioned it uh, last week, and then I forgot just that fast. And so when you posted it today, I was like, yeah, Max said he was getting down with Eddie Conway. So I was happy to see it, man, just to see, you know, see it official out there, just uh, putting it. And then uh, we also had another video that came out, that Al Jazeera video. I don't know if y'all mentioned that in the from the time mm-hmm. before I got on. But well, uh, yeah. So this was a big day for abolitionism. The Free Alabama movement uh, got out there in the world stage. Um, oh, well, that was a powerful video, too. That's about 30 minutes long. It's the first installment in a series. Uh, they had Brother Kinetic, who is now still in solitary confinement after three years. Three years in solitary confinement for his yep. participation in organizing the national works uh, labor strike uh, across prisons across America. Organizing so against about, slavery. But look at what's happening with Brother Kinetic right now. Right, right. Hey, but in the little remaining uh, time minutes we have before we go, come to the top of the hour, let's let's break in this story. I don't need to spend a whole lot of time on it because we covered it before, and it's an sure. article from 2016 with uh, it's titled "Meet the Six Banks Keeping Private Prisons in Business," and it's always good to to keep repeating information because these banks. Um, all these years, not all these years later. Well, in the course of Wells Fargo, 130 years later, however long they've been in existence, they've had their hair in slavery. So I'm glad they chose that photo of wealth of a Wells Fargo branch. But these are the little simple solutions, things that everyday abolitionists can do that, you know, uh, um, that there's really no excuse not to do them if you are abolitionists. If you know that your bank is underwriting the insurance of private prisons and, and without this insurance, private prisons couldn't operate, then why would you not 
first write a letter to the president of the bank, the CEO, whoever's in charge, including your branch manager, threatening to close your account until they divest, till they divest from slavery. No different than the divestment program um, for uh, apartheid in the 70, late 70s and 80s. Same thing, divest, no different than the boycott, divestment, uh, sanction movement uh, uh, focusing on apartheid in Israel right now. We need a BDS movement for slavery, okay? Boycott, divest, and sanction. So if you can't mm-hmm. get your state or even your municipal legislator, the sanction banks who are invested in modern-day slavery because of the loophole in the 13th Amendment, you as a customer of that bank can sanction them if they do not follow up on your organized, you know, start a, a, a local group of other members who ha- who bank there. Do the awareness thing locally, but in the very least, you can take your money out these banks. You don't think that will harm them? But you must let them know why you're doing it. So I'll read a little bit from this article from 2016 by Rebecca McCray. She's a staff writer on TakePark.com based out of New York. She covers social justice. She said in 2016, as the advent of a Donald Trump presidency looms speculation about what his promises of law and order will mean for criminal justice reform abound. While the spectrum of theories is broad, one thing seems clear. The president-elect's plans to deport millions of immigrants bode well for the private prison industry. The day after his election, shares of the GO Group and Core Civic, formerly Correction Corporation of America, two largest private corporation companies in the world, jumped 21 and 43 percent respectfully. So they named six banks. Let me get down to the six. Wells Fargo is at the top of the list. Um, that's according to Aguilar Shank of Tate Park. Let me see some of the other banks be helpful with their head. It's really focusing on it's really focusing on Wells Fargo. I'm not seeing any other banks. It says Portland's full city council votes to, rec- to recommend divesting. It will be the second city. So again, when I mentioned earlier, local municipalities. Come on, people. You got congressmen that supposed to be representing you or, or city council persons, mayors. And so here's an example of Portland making an abolitionist move recommending divesting from uh, Wells Fargo and divesting from the private prison industry. Uh, the uh, list of six banks is right next to the advertisement in the center of the page there, if you want to. Uh, oh, okay. I think I see with... it. I see it. Yeah. The report, which was published, identifies the six main banks that have played the largest role in financing debt issued by Core Civic and the GEO Group, thereby enabling them to maintain and grow their businesses. Wells Fargo. Check the history. They've been around 130 years, no, over 150 years. That's right. Uh, um, 13th Amendment was put in place uh, 150 years ago. So uh, they started uh, before 1865. That's how long they've been in slavery, y'all. All All right. Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, BNP, Paribus, SunTrust and U.S. Bank Corps. These are the six. If you have accounts, 
I already laid out what you should do as an abolitionist. Wells Fargo, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, BNP, Paribus, SunTrust, and U.S. Bancor. All right? So you have the power if you are a customer or account holder at these banks. I understand it may take you some time, especially if you're a business and, and they hand in, you got to find a replacement. But that's the least you can do. That's a nonviolent act that you can do to to inflict a wound on the beast or the industry of slavery in this country. If you're not willing to do that, you have no business calling yourself an abolitionist. Let's just cut to the chase. All right. Amen. If you know it, do something about it. All right. Max, you want to take us to break? Yes, sir. Uh, You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on the Black Talk Radio Network with Scotty Reed, Max Parkes, and Johanna Naliah. We're talking about modern-day slavery and human trafficking as allowed through the 13th Amendment. When we come back, we'll talk about the videos that have come out and also about the police in Chicago who have... 51 people for murder. We'll be right back after these messages. Since 2008, providing new black media for the masses. Thanks and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio. We'll be continuing our conversation. Remember that if you want to join the conversation and you're already on the Uber conference call, just unmute yourself by pressing star star. Or you can call us at 866-510-9025. All right. So let's go ahead and go into this video. Uh, our very own Max Park disappeared on the real news network. Uh, I actually did a video uh, interview with them uh, a couple of years ago uh, for Black Talk Radio. Uh, but um, I love the work that they do. They do try to support um, the community and reaching out to real people and allowing the people's uh, um, voices to be heard on, on their network. And so I think they do great work and I'm excited to hear uh, Max being on there. So let's go ahead and roll a portion of that interview, which is about 15 minutes long. Uh, you can find it on their YouTube channel, The Real News. I'm Eddie Conway, coming to you from Baltimore. Welcome to this edition of Rattling the Bars. In the past four weeks, I've talked to four organized leaders about a planned rally in Washington, D.C. for prisoners' rights and to uh, 
abolished the uh, 13th Amendment, at least that part of it that says slavery is okay. So I have here with me today Max Parsi, who's a prison abolitionist radio host uh, that's going to spread some light on this 13th Amendment, what it means, and how they intend to try to get it removed. Uh, Max, welcome. Hey, Eddie, how you doing? I'm good. Can you tell me and the audience a little bit about the 13th Amendment and why that's one of the main issues in this planned August 19th National uh, Million Prison Family March? <laughs> yes. Uh, once again, I'm Max Parthas, uh, host of New Abolitionist Radio on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, we specifically talk about the 13th Amendment and the effects that it has had on the United States citizens for the last 150 plus years. Uh, the exception clause, which was put into the 13th Amendment, which basically says, except for prisoners duly convicted, allows the United States to practice legalized slavery and human trafficking even to this day. So we feel that by taking that uh, language out of the of the 13th Amendment, we can stop legalized slavery in the United States. And we're also asking for congressional hearings on the 13th Amendment itself and the effects that it has had on our society for this last century and a half. Okay, but now, um, what are you saying that the uh, 13th Amendment, what kind of, I mean, okay, I recognize, the, I spent 44 years in prison, so that needs to be made clear. I recognize the slavery aspect of the 13th Amendment, that exception clause, but what are you saying about the rest of the 13th Amendment in terms of its impact on the uh, United States of American citizens? Well, that particular section of it, which says, except for prisoners duly convicted. It was first uh, put into play in 1777 uh, by Vermont. Vermont was the first one to use an exception clause and start incorporating what they called then prison convict leasing. Uh, the same thing happened here in South Carolina. In South Carolina, our penal system began in 1866, exactly one year after the 13th Amendment was passed. Uh, it used convict leasing, which was the new form of slavery, as you're very familiar with, <clears throat> and the film uh, Slavery by Another Name documents very well. They used convict leasing here in South Carolina all the way up to 1960. So uh, that went on for quite some time, where they were able to literally take possession of a person's body, store their body, and then lease them out to different private companies across the state for uh, political purposes or political prizes or just to make some money. Today's climate, though, uses it far more advantageously and it's more of a global institution now. With the introduction of private prisons back in the 80s, I believe uh, Reagan was the one that brought the first private prisons back into existence with a, a woman's prison in Louisiana. Since that has occurred, we have seen our prison numbers explode and primarily because now, with the people being property of the state, they don't even have to lease you out using you like convict leasing anymore. Most of their money is made simply by possession of your body. Uh, your story is heroic and epic. I listened, I watched all 10 segments of your story itself. And I have to really give you a salute, brother, because you have done some amazing things. 
and are aware of some incredible things. But I remember in your interview, you was talking about the moment where your life changed and where your ideals changed when you saw what was going on in Newark with the tanks sitting there and this man sitting atop a tank aiming it at black women and children. Well, I grew up there. I, I was probably there at the time as a child, for all I know. So with this 13th Amendment, the way it's used right now, having 2.4 million prisoners static number in prisons, 13 million going through jails, 8 million on probation and parole, and that's not counting juvenile detention facilities and also uh, immigration centers, the storage of these bodies generates billions upon billions of dollars. The United States alone pays $182 billion a year just for our prison system. Is that money taken from the taxpayers in the United States of America? I mean, where's that money coming from? The $182 billion that I just mentioned comes directly from the taxpayers, but it's not the end of where all the income comes in. They also exploit the prisoners, as you know, uh, through the uh, commissary, uh, also through the new video conferencing or phone calls, through JPay. Uh, there's a, a million different industries that all exist primarily off of the number of prisoners that are kept in prisons. And this includes everything from health care to food providers. Mm-hmm. Well, tell me, um, on the August 19th, uh, I, I understand there will be a demand to uh, remove this exception clause uh, how do you see that happening? It's, it's my understanding that when you try to tackle an, an amendment to the Constitution, it takes like two-thirds of the states, uh, perhaps as many as 35 states or something, to, uh, to make that happen. Is, is, is a repeal possible uh, with all those red states and Trump in place? Not only is it possible, it's inevitable. You know, I called the NAACP a couple of months ago and I asked them if they would be in support of the Millions of Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington and amending the 13th Amendment. And they told me at that time that the climate was too hostile for them to even consider opening up the Constitution for reinterpretation. But what they're not familiar with and many people are not aware of is that there is already a convention of states in progress happening through an Article 5 convention where they're trying to change or add amendments right now to the Constitution. Just last week, Arizona was the 10th state to sign on, uh, actually the 9th. Also, North Dakota was the 10th state to sign on. They only need 34 states, and they're already a third of the way through who have actually signed on to this uh, convention of states that is going on right now. Uh, well, wait, I... wait, Max, wait, wait, yes. that's scary. Yeah, that was the moment where I scared him, like, literally, like, Max, you're scared of me, what do you mean? <laughs> but it, it, like many others, they think that it's impossible for us to uh, amend the Constitution when the truth is it's going to happen whether we're there or not. Uh, I was just reading today, and uh, a video came out today from the Convention of States organization where Iowa now is poised to become the 11th state to move towards a convention of states. You know what Fred Hampton Jr. said? Dare to struggle, dare to win. 
If you mm-hmm. don't dare to struggle, then, and you know the way he would cuss, then, GD, you don't deserve to win. Right. Yep. So, there it is again. I mean, it was good. I, I enjoyed uh, listening to it. And, I mean, of course, I admire the brother just for, you know, the, the time served and the struggle that he represents, you know, what have you. But, again, we we continue to engage these people. And this is part of my, my issue, too, with all the groups and the so-called leaders and all the figureheads and the talking heads and the cable TV hosts and the, the books and the people that's out here representing this struggle, and they're not really the struggle. Um, when you can have a sit down, I mean, if, if what it takes for us to put this program together, for example, we all know each other. We all have worked together for years. We still have times week to week where we don't agree on what's going on within just even this program itself. We don't always match up with everything. We have to work through that. So it seems absurd to me that all these people that represent, that want to represent the struggle, they want to get props for being on CNN and want to be out here talking and blah, 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 all this stuff they want to do to promote themselves. Don't engage us. And then you see like a situation like this, you would imagine brother Eddie Conway, an elder like Eddie Conway would be somebody that would definitely see what we talking about, appreciate where we are coming from He's been in it long term. He's known it. He's he's heard the rhetoric. He he quoted um the brother um that did the that did the whole dissertation on the thirteenth amendment. I can't think of that brother's name right now. Just last week he was on the on the other interview he did. He talked about this guy. But anyway, so he knows the slavery aspect and he knows that saying all that to say. But still, to hear what we're saying on New Abolitionist Radio and what Max said, it confronted him where he came to that cognitive dissonance moment. And like Scotty said, Fred Hampton was dealing with this back in the sixties. Like, hey. Snap out of it. Either are we fighting or not? Like, what do you think this is? And this is somebody been incarcerated for 40 years. So the average soccer mom, the average Negro that just is assimilating as, as well as they can, don't want to risk their job, don't want to go to church and have nobody recognize them from protesting or doing and all these people are so conflicted and so individualistic. This is why we have to 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 address people like, look, this is do or die. This is life or death. Like it's not just some little garden party, you know, weekly get-together radio show affair. We really are in need of soldiers, of warriors, of people that are willing to, to give it all. Yeah, and you know, the biggest problem that I think we're dealing with right now is a division of our objectives. Uh, we are fighting on so many different fronts and have yet to agree on what it is we're fighting. You know, uh, it reminds me of the old story of the six blind men and the elephant, you know, where the elephant was presented to these blind men and each one felt a different part of the elephant and decided it was a different creature. One guy felt the trunk, said, oh, it's a snake. Another guy felt the tail, said, it's a lion. Somebody felt the leg and said, this is a tree. But what they didn't realize was that it was one creature called an elephant. And that's what we're dealing with right now. So we have prison abolitionists, we have mass incarceration warriors, we have bail and part of bail reformers. We have so many different aspects where we're all fighting the same thing and calling it a different name. And we don't recognize that it's all connected under one umbrella called legalized slavery and human trafficking allowed through the 13th Amendment exceptions. If we could ever agree on that, then this system would begin to fall immediately. But we're fighting 
from so many different angles, and we can't even agree on what we're fighting. There you have it. my theory. Yeah, there you have it. I mean, when we can agree on slavery, but again, I get lessons all the time from so many angles, like I always say. You know, I sat in grade school and, and really did say a prayer from my heart as an innocent child. I didn't know no better. I mean, whether you believe in God or believe whatever, I just said a prayer just sitting there in class at one point after however many years, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, whatever, of learning this and being indoctrinated with the history of slavery in America and the treatment of black folks and the hundreds and hundreds of years. And all of it just started to kind of come to me as a child. And I just simply said, I just don't know how could it have gone on for so long? How could, how could, I mean, 400 years, how could that happen? How could everybody alive at a given time ever just sit up and just let the next people just walk right into it and just die and then another hundred years? I mean, I really didn't know. And what I get week in, week out, really day in, day out, you know, for the last several years being on this program is a is a regular instruction on the hows and whys of how slavery on the plantation went on for so long. And sadly, it's the same techniques and tactics and apathy and ignorance and just general delusion and, and foolishness and stupidity in some cases. And some folks is just evil and everything else that is continuing it right now today. Sad. Well, I would yes, like yes. to also reiterate what I said before when we played the clip of crystals interview on there and that, uh, Brother Eddie didn't suffer a lot, man, and that cognitive yeah. dissonance could be something else, not to profile yeah. elderly people, but imagine, you know, living through the horrors of, of modern day slavery. And I, right. I don't I don't know. Or, or maybe he was just shocked that or maybe he never even considered a constitutional convention. Even yeah. though it's been mentioned in, in the past, there are some elders who have gotten out of prison, political prisoners, and he's a former political prisoner that won't even talk to you. You know what I'm saying? Well, they'll talk to me offline, but they don't want to be interviewed. They definitely ain't trying to be in front of no cameras because they they still suffering, man. And they didn't put in, you know, uh, uh, enough for the people. And we need young people you know, to step up. We need new abolitionists to step up. But um, the Constitutional Convention right now, you know, who's to say that we can't organize a Constitutional Convention? That seems like something that really needs to be discussed and followed up on uh, following the march on Washington, D.C. to put the world on notice that USA Inc. is still practicing slavery through the 13th Amendment. And then that could be the jumping off and jump off point for they, who's to say we got to go with the Koch brothers organized. They, they oh. a third of the way there uh, with the right momentum, with the right networking, which could happen August the 19th. Uh, we could totally start our own. So I'd just like to leave y'all with that. Right on. I don't know if we're going to be able to do that. Just from my examination of this convention of states that is occurring now, I've already seen three states sign on just in the past month alone. So they've got some huge momentum. By the time we get to Washington in August, they can already be prepared for a convention of states to happen before then, if not at that time. So and if they have one, 
I don't mean to cut you off, Mass, because we want to reserve some time for you uh, for this National Poetry uh, Month. But, Max, let's just say they do what you say. Um, they're going to do it that quick. And, of course, we got to be organizing against it. We can't let them control it. So uh, we really need to to um, stay plugged in to this and the latest development so that we can inform uh, people. But let's say they put a constitutional convention together on their own. Or, and, and then, hey, it's nothing prohibiting us from following up with one the next year and undoing everything that they did and do some damage of our own. I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Okay, Scotty. All right. <laughs> well, um, the other video that came out was the uh, Prison Factory Fault Lines, which uh, is an awesome, incredibly engaging and powerful video. I think I mentioned earlier, it's first in the part of a series. I'm going to read to you uh, what was written to me by the Fam Queen team. Uh, which is the uh, women who are associated with the uh, Free Alabama Movement. <clears throat> and they said, this will be one of the most interesting documentaries you will ever see in the history of the state of Alabama Department of Corrections. We encourage that everyone in the state of Alabama and across the nation to share this documentary in effort to bring awareness to the corruption in the ADOC and the prison systems across the nation fueled by the 13th Amendment prison for profit. It took a lot of risk, hard work, effort, and solidarity to create this film. Please know that this was only the beginning of a long fight for humane treatment and justice for the incarcerated in the U.S. forever. We will stand in solidarity. And then they provide the link from Al Jazeera. So uh, just the idea that it comes from Al Jazeera tells you that this conversation has gone international. The yeah, world is talking about this literally now. Of course, of course. But let's see if we can uh, play the trailer uh, to. It's called the Prison the Factory. Uh, we'll be able to skip to this ad here in just a moment. List. The list. We'll listen to just a little bit. But I'm gonna tell you straight up: the Alabama movement gonna stand in a test that incarcerated lives matter. The voice you're hearing is that of Robert Earl Council Jr. Yeah, because I'm incarcerated. I'm still a man. I'm still a human being. I'm still somebody's father. Still somebody's brother. Still somebody's son. And I demand to be treated humanely. And I'm going to stand on that. He's been in solitary confinement for more than three years. These are recordings from his cell inside Alabama's Holman Prison. It's going to be bad if something don't happen soon. Robert also goes by the name Kinetic Justice. These videos are from last September when Kinetic used a smuggled cell phone to help organize the largest prison strike in U.S. history. Holman Prison was ground zero for that strike. The United States got the largest prison strike in history going on, but mainstream media is blackballing. You ain't gonna see it on right? Inmates refuse to work jobs that pay an average of 50 cents an hour, but their protest was over more than wages. They claim the entire system, plagued by overcrowded and violent conditions, amounts to a form of cruel and unusual punishment. They can't provide protection. They can't provide anything. We're not getting anything we need here, but we're being patient. We need y'all to do something soon. The strike is said to have spread from kinetic cell to about 50 prisons in 24 states. Even some of the guards at Holman joined the protest. The officers have understood that the administration has no regard for their lives. 
for a period of just under three weeks, he's able to have a cell phone in solitary inside this prison, and he sends out 146 dispatches from the inside. Y'all be prepared. Get with the movement. Y'all playing. This ain't a moment. It's a movement. Soon after, prison guards raided Kinetic Cell, taking his phone. And then he goes to silent. Using solitary, the prison systems made it nearly impossible to communicate with kinetic justice. So we're going to see if we can write him a letter, get through to him that way. While we waited for a response, fault lines heard from several other inmates. These are their stories. Hey, Bennu? Hi. We've been contacted by an inmate inside this maximum security facility in Alabama. How are you doing, man? Same old, same old. It's Peter Slayer. Same old shit every day. The man talking to me on Skype is Melvin Ray. He also goes by the name Bennu Hannibal Ra Sun. Bennu and Kinetic Justice met at Holman Prison. Together, they formed an organization called the Free Alabama Movement. It began as a study group inside the prison law library. We came up learning the law, and then we got to a point where we ended up starting teaching it and teaching the whole system. Soon, Bennu and Kinetic were leading work stoppages and hunger strikes, which led up to last year's national strike. Show me where you are right now. Um... I'm in solitary confinement. I'm in a 8 by 12 Bennu is one of 23,000 inmates living in a prison system built to hold about half that number. He served 16 years of a life sentence for murder, a crime he says he didn't commit. Put in a cell. You can go put in a strip cell for any reason or for no reason. There's not a grievance to see this. There's no way that we can even complain about it. This is a concrete rock. You don't have toothbrush. You don't have any clothes. You're stripped down literally to nothing. This is what you sleep on. Just like this. He sent us these videos from his cell inside solitary confinement. Alabama's prisons are home to the fifth highest incarceration rate in the world. Nearly everyone, from inmates to the Department of Justice, agrees the system is broken. You can look on the news in the state of Alabama every day and you'll see every politician, lawmakers, prison officials, all of them are speaking about the conditions in the prison, but we're not allowed to talk about it. When we speak on it, we're being punished. Officials placed Bennu in solitary for failure to obey orders and for using a cell phone to talk to the media. He was supposed to be there for 15 days. They snatched me up August the 19th of last year, uh, right before the uh, nationwide work strike on September 9th. That was eight months ago. Today, Bennu is still in solitary.
There you have it, man. Uh, the visuals are incredibly powerful on that as well. To see Kinetic in that cell there just laying on that iron slab and being tortured, because that's what it is, uh, by every defin definition of the name, it is torture, for three straight years with nothing more than wanting the respect of a human being that everyone else has. And they even have parts in the video where they follow the van around Delivers the inmates to their jobs, jobs like the motor vehicle department where they work there for two hours a day, to McDonald's where they flip burgers, to farms where they farm things. It's just amazing to see this coming out as it is. And, you know, I was supposed to be in that documentary. If you remember, uh, Al Jazeera came to South Carolina, and I was supposed to meet them at the jail here or the prison here in South Carolina. But as soon as they gave my name to the jails or to the prisons, they had their rights to come inside the re prisons revoked. So instead, uh, they ended up in, going to Alabama to speak to one of the brothers out there. But uh, originally, it was supposed to be me. But I've caused so much problems here in South Carolina. Just saying my name at the prisons will uh, get your rights revoked. <laughs> well, yeah, it was definitely good to see to see the brothers, you know, doing the best they can and it just makes you realize how much more you could do yourself you out here you're free you know these these men is in here going through god knows what you know we report on it all the time and i don't even think we know the half um so it was, it was just powerful to see i don't even want to use the word good to see him of course it's not good but like it's just very powerful to see like you said, the visual of it all, to see just even the landscape, to see the conditions, to see their ingenuity, to see their dedication to get the story out, to be the, the I mean, they're like being the energy, the engine to drive the machine. They're willing to put themselves in that position to be the engine to just drive the machine towards freedom. I don't know if you could get any more of a of a direct connection between the literal slave on the plantation being the one that has to start the abolition of slavery movement and start killing and fighting and getting free from the chains themselves to pick up folks like us that's on the outside of it, you know, to help them construct an underground railroad, to help them, you know, get safe houses and get away to get away from where they're they're held prisoner. I mean, it's just it's a, just a direct connection. I would, it's, it's also, I would also um, remind Sorry, remind uh, Max that New Abolitionist Radio has been part of that getting the word out for uh, FAM, Free Alabama Movement. Oh, yeah. I don't know how many years back when we first uh, started getting calls into the program uh, from them brothers. So um, I would have liked to see you be a part of that documentary, but we don't need to recognize, we don't do this for any kind of recognition, but because we document our own history and have, have been. And, and so, mm -hmm. but, but yeah. And, um, shout out to them brothers in Alabama and all the slaves. Like I heard one of the guys say, I'm a slave. Let's just be honest about it. It's, it's dehumanizing, isn't it? It's dehuman, but we have to use those words to impress upon people the seriousness of the situation because it has not changed. And one of the powerful parts from it, too, I remember the guard 
uh, that they interviewed that was actually one of one of the guards for Kinetic Justice, and they also had Brother Melvin Ray in there uh, in the in the film, and then uh, the man, why does mm-hmm. his brother's name just leave my mind that fast? The the, the preacher, he's on the outside now doing the work to help organize them on the inside. If we even one of y'all can remember his name, but anyway, so they were showing him, and then they they did an interview with one of the go- former guards, and he was bringing up the part about how. You know when when they organized the the uh, work strike and then later you know uh, uh, food strike you know uh, what do you call it hunger strike as well that because the state considers them their property how they saw as guards like aligning with them because they feel like it's just as dangerous for them in them conditions so they actually aligned with the prisoners to say we need to get the conditions better and the state shut everybody out the state blackballed and and covered up the story and, and, you know, did whatever for everybody. And he said, because they look at these people as their property and they don't get a word. He was like, this man is a spokesman for these people and he can move these men that are in there to do good or bad. And they don't want to recognize him as a leader. And he's obviously a leader. They don't want to recognize the movement. And it's obviously for human rights. They don't want any other story to come out of the prison system there in Alabama because it's the states and the state says what we say is, is the truth. So you talk about fake news, you talk about state propaganda. I mean, what the state is putting out is fake news. If they're not talking about the real issue of what's going on when you've got the employees as well as the inmates all saying the same thing. All right, you are tuned in to New Abolitionist Radio on this Wednesday evening. It is April the 5th, 2017. Uh, We've reached the last half hour or about uh, last 20 minutes of the program. Uh, On the other side, we will jump into our underground uh, railroad writer of the 21st century and our abolitionist in profile. You're listening to New Abolitionist Radio right here on Black Talk Radio Network. The Black Talk Radio Network is made possible in part with help from the Black Talk Media Project, a North Carolina-based nonprofit engaged in the production and distribution of independent digital black media. Find out more by going to blacktalkradionetwork.com or blacktalkmediaproject.org and look for the menu tab, Crowdfunding Black Media. Black Talk Media Project, helping to provide you with new black media for the new millennium. Tuned in to Black Talk Radio, new black media for the new millennium. Peace and welcome back to New Abolitionist Radio here on the Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, We've been talking about slavery and human trafficking. I just want to make a, a note. Just like in the 1800s, the advocates then realized what we realize now. This is God's work. That's the first thing. Secondly, God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the call. So brothers like Melvin Ray, like Brother Kinetic, uh, can be the champions of a cause like this because they are doing God's work. 
Now, I know there's some atheists out there that don't feel where I'm coming from, but it don't matter. I know where well, I'm coming from. I mean, even whether you, you believe or not, just you're a, a living being in this universe, everybody understands the energy that is in you is either for light or for dark, for good or for bad. I mean, that can't be disputed. I don't care what a person tries to say. It's only obvious. It's, it's, it's the earth either produces fruit or things die and rot away, and then the earth, it regenerates it. So when you get things that are po- pointless and purposeless and cannot be sustained of their own devices, such as the prison slavery system, such as obviously the slavery system of the, of the last, uh, of the previous century, I mean, the land at the end of the Civil War, the land itself had already been played out. That's where so much of that land with the 40 acres and a mule idea came from to just, well, just give it to them because it ain't worth nothing no more. They That cannot be sustained is what I'm trying to say. These things that these people are doing, whether it's beating people, whether it's raping people, whether it's kidnapping people and taking them off to foreign lands and forcing them into slavery, whether it's unpaid labor. I mean, everything you list on their agenda, the thems over there, they're on the other side, everything you list is something that is not sustainable. There's nothing on their list that could just happen of its own, that's organic, that could keep going without stealing land and stealing resources, including human resources. There's no way they could do what they do without doing dark, evil works against people. So whether you believe in God or not, you cannot justify an unsustainable practice as a living being because anything that's cancerous will kill you. So what you want to kill individuals, you want to kill yourself, you want to kill the planet, the environment, what you're standing for. If you're not trying to end slavery, you're trying to you're trying to support death. But who does that? That's ridiculous. Well, I I want to point out that we did have scheduled to talk about the policeman in Chicago who framed 51 people for murder. Please go to our Facebook page, New Abolitionist Radio, and check out that article very powerful, uh, important thing for you to know just how deep and dirty this has become. In the meantime, we'll get on to our regularly scheduled segments, which is our uh, rider of the 21st Century Underground Railroad. And I believe either Scotty or Johanna will be doing it this week since my phone kind of acts up a little bit here. But uh, our rider this week is Andrew Wilson, who was released just this past March after being incarcerated for 32 years over a murder he did not commit. Well, I mean, I could go, I could do what Scott, are you doing the, uh, okay, uh, do the underground. The, um, the brother's just another one in who knows how many untold thousands and tens of thousands of sad situation we're dealing with. Uh, this is from the Telegraph the UK newspaper says, this is unbelievable says the man who was exonerated for a L.A. murder as he walks free after 32 years, and then they added in there that he's not bitter. I don't give a damn about that part. You think he's going to tell y'all he ain't, he ain't bitter? You think he really is bitter 32 years? He should be. Andrew Wilson, a broad smile on his face and no bitterness in heart. So they're really trying to push this. Like, don't be mad. He's not mad. Bullshit. Clasped his hands with his family on his first day of freedom Thursday after. So this is from March, so he just got out after spending 32 years in prison for a murder he denied committing. Wilson, now 62 years old, was released from the Los Angeles County Men's Central Jail downtown into a sea of cameras and cheers and applause from university law students who worked to free him. So here we go again. 
The system itself is not getting this man out. This is university law students who work to free him. This is unbelievable, Wilson said. Wilson uh, maintained his innocence since his arrest in 1984 for the stabbing death of Christopher Hansen, 21, in Los Angeles. A day earlier, earlier, Superior Court Judge Laura Priver ordered Wilson released after prosecutors conceded he did not get a fair trial. Hmm. Took him 32 years to admit it. Loyola's Law School Project for the Innocent, which fought for Wilson's release, pointed to numerous due process violations. It's been a nightmare, but I survived and got to the end of the road, Wilson said. Wearing a red Loyola shirt, Wilson held hands with his sister and his daughter. His 15-year-old granddaughter was also by their side. Wilson said he holds no bitterness because that would be a waste of time. Believe it or not, I think I'm all right upstairs, he said, drawing laughter from his family members. I still have a parent. Wilson's daughter, Katrina Burks, 43, of Muskegon, Michigan, said... It's been a long 32 years, and I'm glad it's over. I stayed hopeful all the way, said Gwen, 49, of Inglewood, California. She was 14 when her brother was sent to prison. It was a scary. It was scary because it's my brother, and he would never come. And I thought he would never come back. That's what I thought in the moment. Asked what he thought of this of his prosecutor, he said, "I'm past it. I just want to want to go get something to eat right now and love my family. If he didn't eat soon, I'm going to eat my shoes." Wilson joked. Wilson will travel as soon as he can to St. Louis to visit his 96-year-old mother, Margie Davis, who was a tireless advocate for his innocence over the decade, according to his lawyer, Paula Mitchell. Mitchell said before the hearing, the numerous due process violations recently came to light that showed Wilson did not receive a fair trial. She pointed particularly to a weeks-long delay before police began canvassing for suspects with Hanson's girlfriend, Shalina Saladina Bishop, who was 17 at the time. Bishop was the prosecution's only eyewitness. Among missteps by the prosecution was the suppression of evidence that Bishop previously filed a false police report accusing another man of rape. According to so she already accused somebody else of rape that they didn't do. They didn't let that into the into the case. She's an excellent witness for this man to go to jail for life. According to court papers filed by Mitchell and other attorneys with Loyola's, Loyola's Law School's Project for the Innocent, the district attorney's office said it would not retry Wilson. Another hearing was set for May 3rd to begin the process to determine whether he is factually innocent, which could lead to compensation claims. New abolitionist radio salutes his brother, and- Andrew Wilson, for uh, making it through the struggle. He's free now. Our Underground Railroad, 21st century rider to Underground Railroad. Salute. 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 That's crazy. Welcome to Freedom, brother. Our next segment will be our uh, abolitionist in profile. Every week we do that also. We share uh, a contemporary or past abolitionist so you can be aware of these freedom fighters who have made such a difference in our lives. Our abolitionist in profile, man, it's, it's good I have some extra time. Because uh, we do want to leave Matt some time. Hopefully his phone will cooperate so he can share some poetry with us as this is National Poetry Month. I uh, have linked to the full profile of Maria W. Stewart, born in 1803, died in 1879. This is an, an amazing African-American woman. Uh, why did I call her an African-American woman? Because she was not the descendant or in, or ever enslaved. She was born free. That's another part of the history that people don't want you to know. 
um, about um, this country or this nation and the so-called people who who founded it and and all this and that. Uh, they do want us to believe that we're we're all descendants of enslaved Africans, but guess what? We shouldn't even be dividing ourselves among ourselves um, along those lines. But it is important to just acknowledge facts, acknowledge the history. And so here is uh, Martha W. Stewart. Let me share a little bit about her. The um, in September of 1832, free black domestic Maria W. Stewart became the first American woman to address a public audience of women and men. She spoke out against slavery, also criticized black men for not standing up and being heard on the subject of race. Uh, she wrote pamphlets and speeches for William Lloyd Garrison's The Liberator till she retired in 1833. Now, I'm going to womenshistoryblog.com and share a bit from her very long entry. Again, this is this is a, a, a woman of note that we have not heard of. First African-American woman to lecture in public. She, Maria Stewart was an essayist, lecturer, abolitionist, and women's rights activist. She was known, uh, was the earliest known American woman to lecture in public on political issues. Stewart is known for four powerful speeches she delivered in Boston in the early 1830s, a time where no woman black or white, dared to address an audience from a public platform. She was born free as Maria Miller in 1803 in Hartford, Connecticut. All that is known about her parents is their surname, Miller. At the age of five, she lost both her parents and was forced to become a servant in the household of a white clergyman. She lived with this family for 10 years. So till she was 15, although she received no formal education, she learned as much as possible by reading books from the family library. After leaving the family at the age of 15, she supported herself as a domestic servant while furthering her education at Sabbath schools. Specific details about her employment or where she lived at the time are unknown. As a young woman, she moved to Boston. On August 10, 1826, she married James W. Stewart, a 44-year-old veteran of the War of 1812. After the war, he had earned a substantial living by fitting out whaling and fishing vessels. At the time, African-Americans made up only 3% of Boston's population, and the stewards were part of an even smaller minority, Boston's black middle class. Uh, he goes on to die in 1829. Uh, they did not have any children, and he left her with a substantial inheritance, which she was defrauded of it by the white executors of her husband's will after a drawn-out court battle. Once again, she was forced to turn to domestic service to support herself. Wow. Um, goes on, is it's, it's again, very notable woman. Uh, let me get to she addressed, let me see, her speeches, because it's four speeches that she was known for. All right, soon afterwards, Stewart began to deliver public lectures. Her first speaking engagement was on April 28, 
1832, before the African American Female Intelligence Society of Boston, aware that she was violating the taboo against women speaking in public, Stewart asserted in her talk that the frowns of the world shall never discourage me. While the main thrust of the speech was to urge African American women to turn to God, she also urged them to stand up for their rights rather than silently suffer humiliation. It is useless for us any longer to sit with our hands folded, reproaching the whites for that will never elevate us she said despite the fact that she had little formal education she continually showed her intelligence in lectures referencing the bible the u.s constitution and various literary literacy works she was criticized for daring to speak in public stewart would claim that her authority came from god that she was simply following god's will on September the 21st, 1832, she lectured to an audience of both men and women at Franklin Hall. In that speech, she asserted that free African Americans were hardly better off than those in slavery. Look at many of the most worthy and most interesting of us doomed to spend our lives in gentlemen's kitchens. Look at our young men, smart, active, and energetic, with souls filled with ambitious fire. If they look forward, alas... What are their prospects? They can be nothing but the humblest laborers on account of their dark complexions. Hence, many of them lose their ambition and become worthless. Meanwhile, she continued to submit her writings for publication in 1832. Garrison published another pamphlet, Meditations from the Pen of Miss Maria W. Stewart. Garrison also printed transcripts of all her speeches in the Liberator. However, in accordance with the editorial conventions of the day, her contributions were relegated to the paper's ladies' department. Stewart's third speech, delivered at the African Masonic Hall on February 27th, 1833 was titled African Rights and Liberty. In this speech, she again defended her right to speak publicly while castigating African-American men. You're abundantly capable, gentlemen, of making yourself men of distinction. And this gross neglect on your part causes my blood to boil within me. Had the men among us who have had an opportunity turn their attention as assiduously to mental and moral improvement as they have to gambling and dancing, I might have remained quietly at home and they stood contending in my place. The response, man, God, I hear you, sister. Say, if you ain't going to step up, I will. All right. So um, I'll just bring that to a close. Um, and New Abolitionist Radio uh, salutes Queen Mother uh, Maria Stewart. Salute. Salute. Word, man. Um, awesome. Hey, uh, we're going to go into our final segments, uh, final statements, but I just want to share some breaking news that I just received. Uh, for those that have been following us here on Abolitionist Radio about the Annie Dukin story, the chemist in Massachusetts just found out that 20,000 convicted drug cases will be thrown out uh, from this woman, and we'll talk about it next week here on New Abolitionist Radio. That's 20,000 people who will gain freedom now. Wow. That's that's amazing. Wow. Good job, abolitionists. Yeah, yes, man. sir. 
Yeah, we'll definitely have to dig into that and uh, be ready next week to report on the ins and outs of that situation. That's crazy. Yeah, when you hear 20,000 cases being thrown out, dude, you just feel like, oh, my God, 20,000. But anyway, we'll talk about it next week. That is definitely going to be a lead story. Uh, Brothers, you want to start with your final comments, and I'll end it off with a poem. Man, peace to the abolitionists, death to the oppressors. I think we said it all. Y'all know what time it is. You know what to do. You see somebody faking like they don't know what's going on, just cut them off. What they say, sweep the dust off your feet and move on. They ain't down for the struggle. I just like to say, you know, that's probably one of my favorite uh, segments on New Abolitionist Radio is the abolitionists and profile. And I am just so inspired by Miss uh, Mother, Queen Mother Maria Stewart. And let let these people, I mean, there's so much history that is uncovered that you have not discovered that you could draw inspiration. These are real people that existed. There's a reason that they're being buried. There's a reason they don't want you to know about them. So that's my favorite uh, story right there. And just, you know, salute to to all the queen mothers and, and our sisters out there who are part of this new abolitionist struggle. Amen. All right. Uh, I guess I'll take us home then. Uh, I first like to point out that on May 13th, uh, I will be the recipient of the 2017 Will Bell Humanitarian Award at the annual Spoken Word Gallery. Congratulations. You can get tickets. Thank you, brothers. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, You can get tickets at fifth annual, that's the number five, fifth annual gala 2017 dot brownpapertickets.com if you're in the area and you're able to attend i would really appreciate having you in the house with that being said since it's national poetry month i would like to share a poem and close it with that this is called blue beats black fact cops can have and will do the following rob you rape you shoot you kill you and shake you down abuse you, use you, accuse you, convict you, and then take you down. They will rape your baby cows, shoot your family pet, stop you on a highway and take everything they can get. They will plant drugs in your businesses and homes, shoot you for having narcotics, and then plant the gun on your dead body that they claim to have previously spotted. They will beat you to death no matter how many times you ask for dad and scream, please, please stop. Canada warned their citizens to be wary of our cops. Canada warned their citizens to be wary of our cops. Canada warned their citizens to be wary of our cops who are robbers. In New York City, we haven't seen this many white-on-black mobs since Jackie joined the Dodgers. Florida Popo will profo the same guy 284 times in a single year. In Alabama, the prison population is 200%. In L.A., the people walk in fear. Mississippi's prison cities are completely unjust. Got ice cubes singing songs called Everything's Corrupt. Arizona absolutely guaranteed 100% prison occupancy. That's how they planned it. Louisiana is the prison capital of the whole damn planet. They will shoot a little boy and beat an invalid in his chair, punch a 15-year-old girl in her face, and you don't know how it feels to be here, to be hunted caught, to be kidnapped, sold, and bought as a victim of a system where convictions lead to enslavement. They will leave you lying on the pavement for four full hours, dead, baking in the hot August sun. They prefer
prefer their play resist, and they like it when you run. They drop flash grenades on babies' faces in places they claim to protect. We're SWAT thieves form 501c3 so they can keep everything they collect in illegal search and seizures like the Ebenezer's who screwed the Scrooge. In their clique, pregnant women can get tripped, kicked, and have their wigs split. And that is the God's honest truth. Our definitions are mixed and twisted. If you think this is protecting us, I'd rather my people never even see you and complain you've been neglecting us. Good cop, bad cop. It's all in the gang. And blue beats black when white rules reign. Fuck the police. And remember this, abolition is a reason for a revolution so we can finally know peace. Peace. Just lift your eyes up. Let your wise rise up, see the signs of the times, if it's time, rise up, rise up. When death and hell dwell among all God's people, when those we chose and trusted have become completely corrupted and inherently evil, when the feast that feeds you starves our father's children, when snuff porn and pedo forms begin to get top billing, rise up. When famine claims millions, when justice gives blind eyes to billions, when the Lord's anger is no longer if his protection is gone and your enemies are near If you've seen the sea spill over And the mountains shake, break, and fall If the moon ever turns blood red And you 